Give me every single detail I might possibly need. Evidence, lots of evidence. Give me, <laughs> give me evidence. I'm going to fill my tank with evidence. And then I'm going to wear that evidence with armor into my birth, which can be helpful. Sometimes there is information that can be supportive, but birth doesn't happen in a intellectual state. When this baby hits 88 miles per hour, you're going to see some serious shit. That is the story of human progress. One inch at a time. I'm your host, Joe DiStefano, and you're listening to Stack. In today's episode, I sit with Britta Bushnell. Just a few weeks ago, Emilia and I attended one of Britta's Transformed by Birth workshops, which we reference quite a bit on today's show. These two days that we spent immersed with Britta and just a few other couples very well end up being the most impactful thing we've done throughout Emilia's pregnancy. It completely, well, transformed the experience and empowered us in so many ways to take on this incredible challenge of pregnancy, birth, and the new roles that we'll be soon assuming parents, mom, dad. In today's show, we chat about Britta's new book, Transformed by Birth. But the conversation and the lessons that Britta shares could easily be applied to just about any area of life. This is a very empowering and grounding episode. And I'm so excited for you guys to see how Britta's PhD in mythology has enabled her to teach us so much about life and especially about birth. If you dig today's show or know anybody that could benefit from it, please share it. And if you love the podcast, please rate us and leave a review. These are essential to us helping get these conversations out into the world. Thank you all so much. Enjoy today's show with Britta Bushnell. Today's episode is brought to you by NAD Gold. And you know what? NAD is gold. NAD is the currency of energy production. So when you think about the body, where do we produce most of our energy? Well, we produce it in the mitochondria. Well, what the heck gathers up all the ingredients that we need to produce energy and throws them where they need to go inside the mitochondria? That, my friend, is NAD. This stuff is amazing. But the problem is every decade we're alive, we're losing and producing less and less and less of this stuff. And there's a lot of reason to believe that that is actually at the core of aging. By 40, we've got 50% of the NAD that we once had. And by 70 or 80, forget about it. You've got almost none. NAD Gold from Quicksilver Scientific is allowing you to reverse engineer aging and boost your energy quickly. This stuff is gold. So head on over to quicksilverscientific.com. Check out NAD Gold. It's right on their homepage because it's such a hot product right now. And use code STACKED at checkout. That's STACKED, S-T-A-C-K-E-D, at checkout. And you're going to save 15% on your first batch of this stuff, and you will not regret it. Um, so yeah, let's just, we'll just start rolling, but uh, thank you so much for coming. Like, oh, um, I'm so thrilled to be here. Um, it's always fun to connect with, <laughs> with people that are interested in this work. Yeah. 
and who have been touched by it. Like that, that makes it special for me. Yeah. You know, like your workshop, which Amelia and I just completed a week or two ago, it was like, I have so many takeaways from that. And, but the funny thing is, is like, if we think about, and I think we'll end up talking about your, the way that you kind of teach and, and the metaphors and the, the lessons from mythology that you weave into your class. But the really bizarre takeaway for me is like, I could look at, and I could write down the top 10 things that I took from the workshop, but there's just, it's more energetic. It's more actually feeling ready to be a dad or take on this challenge and, and knowing how to interpret anything that happens or, or confidence in my ability to, to deal with whatever might come up. I love hearing that. I love hearing that because I believe that my classes are more about a preparation, about a readiness than about filling your head with information. And yet when you think about, you know, oh, am I going to take a childbirth class? It's, you think that it's going to be charts and figures and statistics and information, which has value, but you need more than that. And so I hope that, that people leave my classes in that place of being touched, of being moved, of feeling connected with their partner in a new and inspired way for this journey that is in front of you. I mean, you're, you're not just giving birth, but you're becoming parents. And that's big. And, <laughs> and it's exciting and it's transformational. I, I know you know I love that word, but it's it's about that. It's about how do you how do you prepare for something that you can't know ahead of time what it's going to be. Right, right, <laughs> yeah. So that's a whole different type of preparedness. How do you prepare for the unknown? Right, and well, and, and the and the irony or the funny thing about that is when Amelia first signed us up, I'm like. Good Lord, that's a long workshop. That's two full days. <laughs> like, I how know. hard can this be? Like, right. I like, I know labor could be 20 hours, but do we need to learn for 20? And I know. I never in a million years expected a birth class to impact me the way yours did. Mm-hmm. And I'll tell you what, even when we signed up, I never expected in a million years that Amelia and I would be slow dancing at our birth workshop. Like, it was... Such a hopefully I didn't ruin the surprise. I know you pop popping the bubble at the I'm end of the sorry. No, I'm teasing. There's so many things that, out, that but there's so many of those I'm moments you that you're connecting yeah. husbands and wives, moms and dad, and it was just well, and that's that's part of what makes taking a class in person important. It's like you've got this opportunity to, yeah, I, I mean, my classes are 16 hours long and a lot of people look at that and go, are you kidding me? (laughs) (laughs) 16 hours. I'm a modern person. I don't have 16 hours for anything. Like you're asking me to do 16 hours for, for a birth class that, that birth might not even be that long. (laughs) Uh, it, it likely will be that long, but that's a whole other conversation. And yet, the the opportunities that that 16 hours provides is really about laying some groundwork and and not just the the other thing that that I think is a misnomer is you're not just coming to that class to be taught you're coming to that class to be reminded of what you already know right. and how 
to, to remind you of, of the love that you have for each other and that that is going to support you through this journey more than anything. And if that means putting on a very particular song to have you slow dance and to feel your connection with each other, with your baby between you in that unique way, then yeah, I'm going to do it. <laughs> and I've, I've found, I mean, I've been doing this a long time. I mean, I'm, I kind of surprise myself sometimes when I realize how long, but I've been teaching these classes for 18 years. I, I, I mean, even I hear myself say that I'm like, really? 18 years? Yeah. I'm still doing that? But it's evolved and it's changed. And as I would hope, 18 years in a field, evolution would continue to happen. And it's because of working with people like you, both of you, and and what I see impacts you that informs how I want to hold the classes and how what I see that works and the number of people who are like oh that's slow dance yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like okay yeah is that is it a prescribed moment yes but it's also part of an arc right. the class as as you remember and and also what I try to weave into my book has a story built into it it has a narrative arc. It has an energy that says we're going to build from here. We're going to we're going to keep shifting, and we're going to also come to a a beautiful conclusion that leaves you feeling open and ready. And that matters. And you know, having taught, I've taught one hundred twenty two day workshops myself over the past ten years, and I'll tell you, and I've attended a ton, and I've never had an experience like this, like that sort of, it's not a hero's journey, but it's like kind of like a hero's journey and, and the energetic, the, it, it's a, an incredibly powerful weekend. Uh, I, I mean, I think we would probably do it again next time. We're going to have a baby, you know, <laughs> oh. uh, you're welcome back. Although I have a class for a oh. return parents, oh, which is a different class. Okay. Yes. One of the things that really struck me is when we first walked in the door and, and you began to introduce yourself, you'd said, you know, I've, my PhD is in mythology and you have to say like, Oh, that, like, how did she get into birth or, but Maybe having some interest in in world history and mythology myself is is but that anchored some of the ideas that you brought uh, and being able to consistently bring it back to to some of these mythological stories allowed you to tell a story and and present a case or create a shift that I can't even imagine you could have done without that backbone. So. Could you go into a little bit about uh, Apollo and Artemis and and how you use Greek mythology to to anchor your your amazing weekend? Ab- absolutely. First, I just want to tell you that that the order of things was inverted. I actually came into birth work first, and birth work led me to the PhD in mythology, and that is a story in itself. Uh, and the, the way that I had been trained to do birth work involved some of the myths and some of the metaphors that I shared with you both yeah. in our class. But then the PhD program took it deeper. Wow. And so Artemis and Apollo is one of those examples. Yeah. So 18 years ago, if you'd taken my class, there would have been almost no mythology. Yeah. <laughs> almost done. 
<laughs> I'm trying to think if there was any. I don't think yeah. so. And so, yeah, in the in the process of writing my dissertation, I I was looking at sort of what I started to dub cultural ideals or cultural myths, these things that impact us, that are from the over-culture, that, that the, the giant should that is over our heads telling us how things are supposed to be done. And I wanted to try and understand how that over-culture, those ideals, the, the giant shoulds that weave into our understanding of how we're supposed to do things. I wanted to explore those and look at them around birth because there's a lot of them. Being in this field for as many years as I have been, yes, I've taught classes for 18 years, but prior to that I was a prenatal yoga instructor. So I've been in it for over 20 years. And I noticed how many shoulds there are that show up and they conflict, but they all source back to certain things. And so one of the ones that I address is in the way I talk about it in the book is the reverence for ordered culture over wild nature. And to help understand this, to unpack this one, I use the Greek twins, Artemis and Apollo. So Apollo sort of represents all of those cultured elements, those ideas that he, he repre- he's a sun god, he's a god of poetry and of music, and he likes all of those things that make sense and are socially acceptable and have uh, a presence to them that is pleasing and appropriate, I would say. He lives kind of everything within the bounds of acceptable society. Bright lights, all of those sorts of things. You know, keeping it bright and clean and appropriate. And his one of his sons is the god of medicine. So that kind of is also an element that moves into how it relates into birth. So he sort of represents one side of culture. One side in in mythology and in fairy tales, often twins are meant to be seen as two sides of the same coin, two supporting elements rather than two that are separate, but that two that we say these need to work together to find balance. So Apollo represents all those things I just spoke about. And in terms of Western culture, the overculture, the shoulds, are pretty much all Apollonian. We are just wildly Apollonian. And it has great value. It has helped us create this culture that we have that is that functions well and we get to things on time and we have the internet to to answer any question we ever come to i mean there's so many things that we have have received as a result of this apollonian focus but birth birth reminds us of the other side of that coin And Artemis helps us represent that because she is one of the Greek goddesses of childbirth. 
And a lot of people think she's the great goddess of childbirth because she was born first and then helped her mother in the birth of her brother, Apollo, in the twin, birth of her twin. So that always just makes me laugh because I imagine, (laughs) you know, Artemis coming out fully formed, grown woman, and then being like, okay, I'm newborn, but let me help you, mom. (laughs) You know, immediately she becomes a midwife. And so a lot of people think that's why she's the Greek goddess of childbirth. I think it's much more than that. Artemis represents the wild. She represents that which lives outside of the bounds of acceptable social behavior, outside of what we consider society and culture. She lives in and is of the wilderness. She is sometimes referred to as the wilderness. She is a moon goddess. She likes that which is dark and hidden. She is one with the animals and is more comfortable, actually, in the communication with the animals, which is more in grunts and moans and howls than in well-structured language, which is much more Apollonian much more her brother, Apollo. And birth resides, the actual physical elements of birth, what is needed in the animal body to give birth, resides more on Artemis's side of the coin. But we live in a culture that is highly Apollonian. And so that offers us certain protections in that we have access to surgical birth, we have access to medical support. These things are some of the gifts of Apollo. However, when we only go towards birth with an Apollonian mindset, we actually lose track of what is needed to give birth, which resides in in Artemis's realm, at least much of the time. And so in the way that I teach, it's like, I want us to talk about Artemis more, not because she's better than Apollo, but because she's the side of the coin that is less talked about. It's less familiar. It's the side that isn't just part of what we exist in on a regular basis. Yeah. I mean, there's a thousand different pieces about that. So, and, and that, that, that matters. It's like, so when I'm, when I'm speaking in my classes about how do you move in your body in a way that is supportive of labor, not what is the right way to move, but how do you listen to your body and respond to what it's asking for, that's tuning into that Artemisian side rather than the, the side that says, what am I supposed to do? which is much more Apollonian. And so we, we have to put some energy into this Artemisian side in large part because we have been stewing and simmering in Apollonian side. So it feels threatening and unfamiliar and uncomfortable often to step into that Artemisian side for birth. So we need to move there so that we can begin to understand what is, what, is, what is helpful and functional for labor to flow more smoothly. 
Right. And in, and in the book you write, uh, Apollo is seen as the one who knows and understands and is therefore associated with knowledge. And I think when we, when we look at birth, it's this Artemisian experience. But, you know, when we, when we go into it with such a plan and if our, more importantly, if our confidence is anchored in the plan, in the birth plan, or we're so used to kind of going in and, and having these to-do lists, it's like, you know, you can't have a menu for dinner, right? You know, it's like at some point the rubber has to hit the road. Exactly. Exactly. And that's, that's a huge piece of, of how I teach and what I'm trying to communicate in my book is, is how much we need to find a way to step into and become more okay with being untamed, with being a little out of control or a lot out of control. And those are values that fall more in that wild place of Artemis than in the ordered, structured, controlled domain of Apollo. Right. And and the irony is, is that you actually become in control when you let the nature in. And you've You've talked about like sound as an example. Yes. Um, yes. I, I wouldn't, I, you know, I, I have a control is a word that is not one I love using um, in that I actually think part of what we need is to find a way to feel more okay, even when we are a little out of control or when we feel in, in that unfamiliar, untamed energy of the unknown. And so it's not how do I bring more control to that, but how do I become okay with the feeling of the fluidity and the changeability, even, even when things you know, go in ways that we don't want, even if we don't like it, because liking it or being happy with something is different than having more of a existential okayness. Does that make sense? Are you following me on that one? Okay. So it's how do we come from that core knowing of even if things don't go the way I want them to, I am still okay. Right. It's that like, um, there's a lot, I mean, a lot of stoic work and, you know, it's like the premeditation of evil, right? Like what, what happens if everything we think we're resting our coat on falls away? Right. Right. So, so how do we kind of go down this journey? And I know in the course we use the labyrinth, right? That was part of this kind of lesson, but how else, or you can dive into the labyrinth, but how do we, how do we chart that course? Because we live in an extremely Apollonian place nowadays. Extremely, yes. So I think that, I mean, the labyrinth is is a metaphor that I got from one of my mentors, Pam England, and I, I have loved using that for the number of years that, that I've been doing this work, and it's such a powerful metaphor. The twists, the turns, the unexpected, the non-visible, and what is needed to make it to the center of the labyrinth is to Stay in the moment and keep going. That's it. That's it. You have to just keep within the lines. 
staying with that, not cross lines, and keep going, and you will make it, even if that means you're headed in and out and toward the outside, and you're like, what's happening? This isn't <laughs> going the way I thought it was going, and all of that. So that's that's a very powerful metaphor that, that works for that. I also think it's really important to address those things that you're hoping won't happen. I think it's powerful to say, okay, if a cesarean were to become part of my birth, even if I don't want it, what would I need to do to keep going? What would be helpful for me to know about myself or about the procedure that would support me in having the the best experience possible? even if it's not the idealized image of birth that I had been hoping for. Similarly, I'm somebody who likes to address the P word that is often not spoken about in birth, which is pain. You know, there's there's a movement right now, uh, both around, you know, pain-free birth or orgasmic birth, uh, ecstatic birth, as well as fearless birth. And I don't want to vilify pain or fear. I actually think both make sense. And rather than vilifying those and saying, ooh, let's not talk about pain or don't be fearful, just trust. It's like, no, I want to say, you know, yeah, it might hurt. And what, what would help you if it hurts a lot, if it's painful? What has worked for you in the past when you face really hard experiences? Additionally, we're not just talking about labor. Birth is the threshold. It's the rite of passage into parenthood. And I can tell you almost 20 years into parenthood, there isn't an epidural for parenthood pain. (laughs) There isn't. And so we need skills for dealing with the things that are hard because life brings us hardship sometimes. There's tough moments and we can use our preparation for birth and new parenthood to bolster those skills, those practices, and and to deepen our ability to navigate that which is Difficult, hard, upsetting, painful. You know, how do we face fear? Are we supposed to wrap fear up in bubble wrap and say, I'm not fearful. Let's put it over there. You know, I'm not fearful. There's nothing to fear. Nothing's going on here. Nothing's going on. No, I want to say, yeah, it's okay to be afraid. And you can be brave. There's a difference between fearlessness and fear and continuing to move forward. It's beautiful. And parenthood's going to give you a lot of opportunities <laughs> to deal with that <laughs> as well. It, it, it just yeah. is. And so why not take the opportunity as we head into birth to strengthen some of those? Hey, guys, sorry to interrupt. Wanted to tell you guys once again about my favorite, Symbiotic. 
for years now, probiotics have been all the rage. And today you can find XYZ bacteria tossed into multivitamins, protein powders, coffee, seemingly anything. You toss a little bacteria in there, you, you bump the goodness. But sadly, most of these products actually don't do much in terms of having a positive impact whatsoever on our health. In fact, most don't even satisfy the scientific definition of the term probiotic, which refers not to the bacteria, but the quantifiable health benefit to the person or animal consuming the bacteria. Seed, on the other hand, has 23 strain-specific clinical studies behind it, demonstrating positive impacts on human health. I would strongly recommend you guys consider adding this scientifically validated probiotic product to your regimen. Just use code STACKED at seed.com and you're going to save 20% on your first month of this daily Synbiotic. Now, back to the show. Right, and I think, um, and it's really a two-way street. And I guess before I dive into that, I'll just say about the labyrinth for listeners. Uh, I'll try to, I'll put a picture in the show notes but Britta had us draw this this elaborate, and, and I'm grateful for the instruction because I never would have been able to do that. Um, it's actually rather simple, it, it, even it, though it feels elaborate and hard. Yeah. yeah, yeah. But it's what what you're doing is you're trying to get to the center of this labyrinth just with your finger. And right when you think you should be getting closer, it takes you further. And so you learn not to judge what's happening in the moment or just maintaining that relentless one foot in front of the other type mindset, which is, it was just so powerful. But I think this vilification of pain is, is a part of your book. It's an amazing section of your book. And for me as uh, the dad and husband in the room, the really empowerful, uh, empowering uh, part of that for me in the workshop was, you know, if Amelia is ever in pain, so, you know, you use pain numbers, right? Like, so maybe Amelia's at a 70. Mm-hmm. And if she's a 70 out of 100 because she got a cut while she was cooking, like sometimes I go to a 71 just because I, I really don't like to see her in pain. And in the workshop, learning to not vilify pain or fear pain or or reframe the pain of birth as a as a as a as a this transformative experience helped me and will help me when Amelia is at a 100 right. be who I need to be, which is a 20. Because if I'm at 100 and she's at 100, we're not going to get very far. Mm-hmm. Well, or you're at a 20, you're at a 100 and she's at a 100. And what are you doing at a 100 to take care of yourself? Because right. sometimes in labor, partners go to a 100. Yeah. And it's, that doesn't mean they're failing. Sometimes labor is hard for everybody. And how do you help yourself at 100 so that Amelia can also be at 100 if she needs to be? It's... It, there's there's a, a saying that kind of sometimes is bantered around in birth circles that sometimes the epidural is given for the partner <laughs> because it's so – but I want to share – for me, it's coming from a place of great compassion because it's so hard to see your beloved in pain. That's not an easy thing to do, especially – when you don't know if there's anything you can do to help. That feeling, that's the part that's the labyrinth, that's those twists and turns often for partners, is I don't know what to do. 
I can't fix this. And in an Apollonian culture, we're pretty used to finding a fix-it to any situation. And birth tests that because there aren't fixes. There's being with someone and showing up and, and holding energetic space and love and being with them even if they're suffering, even if they're having a hard moment. It's like, how do you still feel your heart and feel that awe for what your partner is able to do, <laughs> right? I mean, it's miraculous to, to birth your child and to, to show up with that, even if another part of you is going, oh my God, I'm at 100, <laughs> yeah. right? It's that multiple, that, that ability to hold multiple realities at the same time. We, the Apollonian side of us says we're supposed to either be a hundred or a twenty. I actually think, in some ways, you can be both at the same time. You can be a one hundred for yourself and working to be a twenty for her, and and that's fine. That's real. But I think it's important to give yourself permission to have your own experience. Even if that feels like it's it's too much for your partner, it's like, well, then is there somebody else that can show up and be there for your partner as well that can hold space? You know, I use the the metaphor of the river, right? And I love I love this metaphor that that to be in the experience of labor is very watery. It's, it's moving, it's shifting, it's sometimes going over rapid, sometimes splashy, it, it changes. And that energy can sometimes be unsettling. And what that energy needs more than anything is responsive banks that help hold it and move with it and sometimes direct it and sometimes just let go and be follow, uh, follow the energy that it, it flows. And so partners are often stepping into that role of being the banks to that watery energy of their beloved in labor and in postpartum, by the way. Mm-hmm. It's very watery, both of those. And so being that banks, but every now and then, Birth and postpartum can be really watery for partners too. And so if they fall in, <laughs> yeah. you know, if they fall into the river, that's okay. Who who's there to hold the banks for them yeah. during that time? That's those are important things to think about. Yeah, it, it makes total sense. And and it was one of the big takeaways for me was this idea that love and awe is enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we practiced contractions and that sort of the first time that the contractions came in, there was this, it was this strange, empowered helplessness. Right. (laughs) Like, like this almost like patient helplessness. So as the partner, it's, you're, you're standing there, you're, you are in quote pain because she's in pain, Mm -hmm. but it's so clear. There's nothing you can do. You just kind of be the banks and love and awe is enough. It was like a mantra or a theme or a something I wrote down in my notebook, just because it's, just be present with this and and wait. The banks don't rush the river. Right. They respond to the river. Right. 
And that right. was- And they're not LA riverbanks. They're also <laughs> not concrete saying, go this way, right. do as I tell you. There's, it's a dance. It's an energetic dance between the water and the soil. And, and they move and shift each other. And that's, that's the dance of, of being in a, a polarized situation like, like birth and postpartum. Yeah. And it, it was so relevant to us because in the book, as well as in the workshop, we talk about ice and cold as, you know, so when we're practicing contractions, uh, you use ice and cold and that discomfort to simulate uh, the discomfort of, of contractions. How did you come into using cold? And it, and it resonates with us and listeners of this show because we do a lot of it. Yeah, talk to me. Yes. Well, that's, again, something that I was taught by my mentor. Mm-hmm. And it's also, just to be clear, it's not in any way trying to say holding ice in your hand or putting it <laughs> under your foot or, or submerging your hand or your foot or whatever it is you're doing with the ice is similar to labor. No. There's almost no element of that ice that is how labor feels. But we need to have a negative stimulus, something that we go, ooh, I'd rather not be doing this right now, to work with so that we can start to unpack what the mind is doing. Because so much of moving through intensity in labor and in parenthood happens in the mind, happens with how are we being with what is, even if what is is something we wish weren't happening. Right. I tell you, that happens in parenthood all the time. How am I being with this moment that I wish were different? And the ice is an opportunity to practice with that. What does the mind do? Does it say, I'm getting out of here? You know, sometimes that's the appropriate response. But also, sometimes we can't get out of it. So then what do you do? The mind looks for a way out, and then it looks for a way to stay with it. And that's where I want to become curious, is what do you do to help yourself stay in it? Get curious. It's like, I don't want to tell you or your listeners or anybody that I work with, do this, this works, I want to say, what works for you? And I'll give you some suggestions of what I've experienced through my my years, decades at this point of working with families. But most of us have developed skills already. I bet your listeners have developed skills (laughs) for dealing with ice baths and other kinds of ways of doing that. And, and while there's all sorts of health benefits for that, there's also mental benefits, right, for what does your mind do in those moments when it's going, get out, get out, yeah. get out, get out, <laughs> and you stay with it anyway. And you say, okay, how do I work through that? How do I work through that resistance? How do I hold space for the resistance? Sometimes what we need to do is actually allow ourselves to resist and be tender with the part of us that is resisting. Because one of the ways that can be really, can really trip us up is when we resist the resistance. That, that throws in a whole nother level 
of struggle, resisting the resistance. Sometimes the only thing we're capable of is resisting. Okay, well then how do we be okay with that's what's happening right now? Right, right. It's that like Chinese finger trap, this like, you, you ironically, you have to keep going to, to let it out. And I think this idea of resisting the resistance or, you know, especially, you know, apart from birth and pregnancy and, but I think like there's so much resistance in our lives, but we've, we've apoly, I don't know what the term. Apollonianly. Uh, we've, yeah, we've right. Apollonianly <laughs> kind of created it. And it's this dangerous sort of belief system where maybe we're, we're resisting the resistance, but but this is the way it is. This is the, you know, this is where I live. This is the job I have. This is the relationship I'm in. This is the, and we do so much work to like prop up or justify the resistance to the resistance. So how do we, how do we start to deal with that? Yeah. Well, I think that's a big question. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I want a three word answer. Yeah, right. I know that for myself, and I'll just speak that, that most of what I share in my book and what I share in my classes uh, much of it is is personal work right. and practice that I incorporate in my own life. And so I know that I have those moments when I'm having a really bad day. I'm resisting what's going on. And I can fight it and resist it and whatever it yeah. is that's happening. And inside my inner judge is judging the way that I'm responding or reacting to whatever it is that's unfolding. And as soon as I can unhook the judgment, the power of that bad day changes. Yeah. It's just a bad day. Right. It's It's just something that's not I'm you know yeah being human involves things that are tough you know we can't be happy every single day 365 for however many years we are lucky enough to be on this planet we have days that are struggles where i want to work with myself is in developing a kind inner voice for the part of me that is having rough moments rather than judging it as somehow broken that I'm just having a human moment. (laughs) And I think that's also really important with children. One One of the big experiences of my parenting journey was learning to apologize and ask for forgiveness from my kids and asking forgiveness of myself for um, a a parenting blunder. Hmm. Flipping the script. Yeah. Parenting blunders happen. You know, there are moments when it's, you know, gosh, I wish I hadn't done that. Wow. But I want my kids to learn that it's okay to fail. It's okay to make mistakes. And I want to model for them what it looks like to have those moments of, wow, okay, so I really wished I hadn't just blown my top mm. and yelled at you. No, I really, I really wish I hadn't done that. 
we need to discuss your behavior that triggered that that explosion in my voice. But I but I I wish that that explosion in my voice hadn't happened and I apologize for that. I apologize for for my reaction. I'd like to come back and now do a do-over and respond to the behavior instead. And then asking for that. You know, I'm sorry that I exploded. I, you know, that that's not how I want our relationship to be together. That that takes some humility and some oh, it's not it's not easy, but I want my kids to know how to do that with themselves. And the way that kids learn is not by telling them, be easier on yourself. <laughs> be easier on yourself. Really? No, we have to actually model that, ooh, okay, yeah, I'm fallible. Yeah. yeah. It's beautiful. And former podcast guest Ben Greenfield talked about how as a parent, you're actually raising your grandkids. <laughs> and that's just where I'm going with this because I think even as a person that has parents and grew up, it's sometimes parents, it, it's a little godlike, you know, speaking of mythology. And it's this like, yeah. you know, whatever they say goes. And I think like it's so beautiful just to humanize yourself as a person with your kids because it's just – it's not leveling – the playing field in terms of you don't have authority over your household, but it's, it's quite the opposite, actually. Yeah. It's, these are two sides of the same coin, just like Apollo and yep. Art, Art, and Artemis. Artemis. Yes. Uh, one Absolutely. can't exist without the other. The good mood can't exist without the bad mood. Exactly. Exactly. And we need to, you know, it's like, I want, when, when my kids were little and they would have a big emotion, Whatever was happening, they were upset, they were sad, they were angry. It's like, I didn't want to tell them they needed to get over that, that somehow that needed to not be the case because that teaches them that only certain moods are allowed. I wanted to model for them how I wish to be with myself in those moments as well, which frankly, it's in some ways easier for many of us to do that with our children than it is to do it with ourselves. And so the, the which comes first <laughs> becomes a little bit of a, of a dance. But to be able to sit with, with a child and say, mm, you're having a hard day. Yeah. So I'm going to sit right here with you. Yeah. Yeah. You can be angry. Yeah. You can be upset. You can't hit me. <laughs> you know, you can't. There, there's, there's certain behaviors. But I will, I will sit with you. And I will be with you and I will, I will allow your, your anger to have space and witness. And if you need to release it, I'm going to help you find some healthy ways to release that because I think that's important. But I'm not going to tell you you're not allowed to be angry or sad or, or afraid. Like those things are no, I want, I want you to be okay to have those experiences. And as a parent, I want to help, help teach you some healthy ways to be with yourself in those emotions. And in many ways, in my work with parents on the threshold of birth, I'm kind of doing the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> like, how do we sit and make it okay to have some pain? How do you, how do you make it all right to be sad? You know, if, if a birth, if a baby is born in, through an undesired cesarean, how do you hold 
the dual experiences of utter joy at the birth of your baby and sadness and loss at the loss of a desired birth. You know, it's like we finding ways to hold multiple emotions simultaneously. We are complex beings. We need to do that. We, and that's, it's, it's part of what makes birth and parenthood a profound personal growth path. Right. It's like a blessing and a curse of being human, right? It's, you know, my dog, Jerry, you can accidentally kick him in the head and he'll shake it off and forget it ever happened. But we have this ability to compartmentalize, this blessing and curse to compartmentalize. And this part of me is at a hundred, this part of me is at 20. And, and I just think this is so beautiful. And I think so many of us just the other day, speaking of cold, I was, I was doing cryo, which is, you know, this, this vertical tanning bed that gets to negative 200 degrees and you just sit in there for three minutes. But it was funny because I put on this song that was basically just this extremely slow piano song that um, that I love. And I got out and they were like, you're weird. Like most people put on like, you know, hate breed right. or – and so <laughs> – this this yeah. this sort of modern uh, Apollonian call it motivational culture where we're still dampening this full spectrum of emotion. So in other words, when fear sets in, we'll put on a song that like pushes you through. So there's this like don't deal with it. Don't rationally just say, is anything really bad happening? Or is there a way to reframe this? But I think so many of us learn to – not cope, but, but change, change the script in a way that I actually don't think is very, very healthy in the, in the long run. Yeah. It's a, it, for years I've talked about the ice practices using the term pain coping, like learning how to cope with the pain. And through some of my own work and working with a teacher that I work with, Michaela Boehm, I started really exploring it from another perspective, that it's not just coping. Coping is sometimes what's needed. Sometimes we need to have an active doingness to cope with whatever intensity is showing up for us. There are times when that hardcore you know, music is like to rally that like (laughs) forceful energy of like, I'm going to cope through this. Sometimes that's the energy that's needed. What we need to also, in my opinion, do is pay attention to the other side of it that isn't just about a forceful doingness through an intense experience or a hard experience, but is the allowing is the how do you get out of the way of the hard moment rather than fight it? It's how do you also go, okay, right now, this is that. So using the example you just described, it sounded like like having having that music on for you, the, the piano music that was more calming was about more of like this experience of three minutes is intense. And rather than fighting it, I'm going to find a way to flow with it, to allow it. And that's a different kind of energy. And I think we need both. Yeah. 
I think we have moments when coping is what's necessary, that active coping. And then there are times when it's allowing. Right. Oh, it's allowing. It, it makes me think my, my husband's father died, uh, about a year and a half ago. Uh, Oh, I guess about two years ago now. And he spoke about at that end of life, when he was sitting at his father's bed, how his self-talk was about the word allow. It's like he, coping was not what was needed right then for him or for his father. It wasn't fighting. It was about allowing. It's like, how do you allow whatever needs to unfold, to unfold, to move through? Yeah. And birth, birth needs that sometimes too. Hey guys, sorry to interrupt. Just wanted to remind you that Brain FM is awesome and I use it all the time. So head on over to brain.fm slash stacked or use code stacked at checkout to save a couple of bucks on the coolest app for your mind. Now back to the show. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really does. And, um, I think, I think that idea of um, allowing is is incredibly important, and I think you know this. The title of your book is "Transformed by Birth," and I think that for me, I've you know had this really you know that came up in the workshop this really transformative experience myself. And you know, some podcast listeners know my dad passed away about two years ago, and what really began to hit me during this process of allowing is just this, I'm less someone's son and I'm more someone's dad. And that transformation is both incredibly emotional and um, challenging, but this, it, it's, it's a transformative experience that is just absolutely wonderful, but I've been kind of like watching it. Yeah. And... Yeah. 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 It's in, in the book I talk about, and I can't remember if I talked about it in the class or not, but there's, there's an archetypal turning of the wheel of family identity when you welcome a baby. And so if, if you imagine these different spots where it's like child, parent, grandparent, for most of us, we're in the spot of the child a huge portion of our lives and our parents are in the role of the parent and maybe we have grandparents, maybe we don't. And, and maybe we have parents, maybe we don't. That might be a voided spot for, for some parents who've lost parents before they've become a parent, like what you've spoken about. When we welcome a baby into our lives, that wheel turns who is in which seat shifts so your baby's going to come into the spot of the child and you're feeling already that turning of the wheel that is putting you into the apex, into that part, that position of parent. And it's normal as that starts to turn to feel some extra tenderness about that seat being vacant, yeah. right? And stepping into it and being like, whoa that's me. That's going to be me. And even when we have parents alive, that turning still happens. And for some 
parents who are getting shifted into the role of grandparent, that's an uncomfortable shift. <laughs> where it's like, wait a minute, no, I'm used to being up here. I've spent a you know many years hanging out in the parent role yeah. that provides a certain amount of authority, and you parents are the ones who tend to get to make decisions about things, and when you get the turn happens and you get bumped into the role of grandparent, yeah. there's like almost no power there. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and some grandparents love that because they're like, whew, so I, you know, yeah. I'm off duty. Yeah. Like I get to just be in the play. Punch zone. out. Punch out, <laughs> exactly. But that initial turning can be really challenging for the identity shifts to move from the, the seat of the child into the seat of the parent requires identity shifts. You have to become that person who pays attention to somebody else and what matters to them in some really specific ways. You have to advocate for your child because your child can't yet advocate for themselves. That's not necessary when you're the child. Now, sometimes when you're going through the loss of a parent, that also can get inverted where you can become the child who becomes the parent to their own parent can happen, especially in, I, I, I witnessed it with my husband and, and when his father was, was dying and that needing to become the one who takes care. Mm. And for for many, many people who are, becoming parents or our parents, they there's a reason in that top location of of that wheel, they become sometimes the uh, advocate for both sides. They sometimes have to advocate for their child and they sometimes have to advocate for the grandparents, their parents. Right. And that that's that that push-pull energy of the sandwich generation that is sometimes spoken about, right. where they're having to both parent grandparents and parent children at the same time and that i mean that's a whole other topic we could talk about but that's that can be a really challenging place as well right wow yeah it's heavy. i mean there's there's a lot <laughs> yeah but but mostly it's about in my work it's mostly speaking about that shifting identity from being the child to being the parent and what that means and how there can be stress and challenge with our own parents when we take the seat of the parent mm -hmm. and kind of bump them yeah. out of that seat into the seat of the grandparent. And what happens in that relationship? It's common to have the wheels sound like they're grinding mm -hmm. as we shift. <laughs> yeah. What does that mean to yeah. be a parent or right. to be a grandparent to be a parent of a parent is a different relationship. 100% and obviously resonates pretty deeply right now for me. And I think that another, like the interesting thing when you talked about advocating for your child and, you know, at times your parents, this idea of, of new, you know, new boundaries and whether, and I know it's in the book as well. And like, it's just such a, <sighs> There's 
there's not many workshops. Like these are the things that you don't even realize in becoming a parent. I think in Apollonian culture, it's like, well, how much money's in the bank? And like, how, you know, <laughs> like, right. Or, like, or tell me how, yeah. how the cervix dilates. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's like, can I just tell you that when you're in labor, you're not, you're, you're, in your mind, you're not thinking, okay, so four centimeters and six centimeters. You know, it's not, those are, they're, they're, they're so intellectually driven as opposed to bodily and identity-based. And so much of what goes on in transformative experiences, whatever they are, transformative experience of losing a parent, transformative experience of, of birthing a child, for some people, transformative experiences of divorce or job loss, relocation to a whole new place. These are transformative experiences that shift our understanding of who we are. And I want to have those conversations. Like I want to talk about transformation. That's what lights me up. I mean, that's what has me still in this field of childbirth when my kids are 20 and 17. (laughs) I'm not still talking about birth because, you know, birth itself. It's because there's, there's so much richness for transformation that is showing up in this, in this rite of passage, but it's not just about that one event or six times event, depending on how many times you have children. But there's that, that transformation is really electrifying and birth is a beautiful opportunity to focus on that. Absolutely. And I mean, getting back to the, the cold, I mean, right before the workshop, as we do, we had just hosted a, an event and, um, I did a, an event a couple of nights before for uh, a client's birthday party and his wife ended up doing her first ice bath. And I will say that afterwards she said, this was the most, this was the closest thing to giving birth that I had ever experienced. But where I'm going with this is one of the, one of the kind of pieces that we teach is that that first breath in the ice bath is going to dictate the next three minutes. So what we have people do is actually exhale, which is to relax, Mm -hmm. steadily get in. And that first breath you take has to be one of control or, or one of not, I won't use that word has to be through your nose and and should be one that is as relaxed as possible Mm -hmm. because you're, you're beginning a cascade. And if that first breath is one of panic, and I think during this transformative experience and this idea of this process of becoming a, a, a dad instead of a son. And these are the breaths that are going to dictate the parent that Amelia and I become for the next 17 or 20 years or, you know, until we can punch out. Right. I'm not sure when punching out happens, but yes. Um, until they can advocate for themselves. Yeah. Yeah. But there's, I, I, I love what you're speaking about in terms of the breath, the exhale is the breath of letting go. It's, it's the last breath that we take on the planet is an outward breath. It's that breath of letting go. And so it's when we are stepping into challenging experiences, it's how do we, that, yes, relaxation, softening, flowing, it's, that is the breath that is often more the flow breath and the inhale is more the coping breath. 
right? It's a, exactly. they're different kinds of energies. And, and again, they each have value in different ways and in different moments. But I know that I am generally an inhaler. <laughs> more, more, more. Inhale, 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 inhale. And as such, my practice needs to be much more about the exhale because I tend to feel pretty comfortable in Apollonian realms. Like mm. that's that that inhale, the bring it on. It's bright, light, busy, directive. I, I like having my my bullet points that I need to make sure I, you know, do in a day and my calendar and make sure to get places on time and all of that. I'm comfortable within <laughs> that. But those, that's the inhale yeah. of our culture. And so I know that my practices need to be about finding some balancing energy to that inhale energy, which means I need to work with my exhale and find ways of the flow, of the letting go, of the softening, of that Artemisian side that is about nature and the movement of, of cycles of seasons and days and moons rather than clock time. Right. You know, it's going out to the ocean and connecting with the waves rather than, you know, the, the bullet point list or the yeah. calendar, which di- can direct so much of our energy. So it's, yeah, it's, it's finding where, where is your balancing energy? I think there are some people for whom the practice they need is the inhale. I don't know about ice bath. That's your department. <laughs> I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to step into something I don't know. But, but in life, there are some people who are far more in that Artemisian energy and need more of the gifts of what Apollo brings. I don't think it's as, as common yep. because the overculture values so much the values of of Apollo's realm, that many more of us are in there. And I know that there are people who who need practice inhaling. Right. Well, I think, you know, we put all the Artemisian kids on ADD medicine, so (laughs) we squeeze them in. You know, I think the entire, like, education system is so Apollonian that... So Apollonian. (laughs) No matter what your nature might have been... Yes. We'll, yes. We'll, we'll fit you in. We'll fit you in. <laughs> yes. And that's why I think it's wonderful when schools go and do wilderness programs and connect in with nature. And my kids went to a school that had an outdoor education element where they went and spent a day every month out in nature wow. with in nature docents and various different things, learning about and connecting with the ground and the earth and the bugs and, you know, all of that. But that's not common. I mean, that was a public school, but it's, it's, it's not super common. Right. And yet I do think we need that. We need to find some of that balancing energy or we're, we're in a place of imbalance with, with such strong Apollonian energy that's why I spend so much time talking about the Artem- Artemisian side because we need that balancing force. Right. And and as it relates to birth, I think one of the things that also t- uh, stood out in the course wasn't something you said, but something that was said. And, and of course, um, everyone can have their birth the way that they want it. 
And if you're an Apollonian, you're probably going to gravitate this direction. And if you're Artemisian, you're probably going to go this way. And maybe Apollo might rescue you. We'll see. But one of the things that was said that was interesting is one of the guys who was a some kind of financial advisor, which you don't get any more Apollonian these days. And he said, like, every child from his colleagues and coworkers had been C-section. So he said, seemingly everyone is having C-sections. And I think it's speaking, one of the parts of the book that I really enjoyed was the uh, creating the environment and obviously the workshop where we talked about Lucy and I'm big on that. Uh, but this environment for labor and not only having a birth plan, but like, you know where I'm going with this. The Yeah, about, about what kind of environment supports the physiology right. and the hormonal response, the animal response of labor. And yes, it's often one of the things that is so challenging and scary about birth today is how different it feels from how we live. And so there is an energy that that anxiety of, oh, I feel something big coming and this is going to be different than what I'm used to. That fuels a lot of energy around birth. And it tends to fuel some responses. It fuels the response of, I need all the information. Give me, give me every single detail I might possibly need. Evidence, lots of evidence. Give me, <laughs> give me evidence. I'm going to fill my tank with evidence. And then I'm going to wear that evidence with armor into my birth, which can be helpful. Sometimes There is information <laughs> that can be supportive. But birth doesn't happen in an intellectual state. So there is an element of how do we step into that Artemisian, that bodily driven energy of birth that doesn't pay much attention to statistics and evidence and all of that. It's a bodily, bodily experience. And, and how, you know, yes, if we're so used to being facts and figures, we may find ourselves going in and having a hard time stretching into that more Artemisian, that more animalistic element. So there are things we can do to help ourselves to awaken that animal side of us and allow the neocortex, that that modern brain that is so wonderful in our day-to-day life that serves us beautifully but can actually get in the way in birth, how can we support this other side to awaken? And Things are, I mean, they're all sort of things that fall over in Artemis's realm. You know, she's a moon goddess. She likes the dark. And so darkness is one of the things that tends to help in labor. Seems like every baby's born at 2 a.m. Right. (laughs) Well, and labor tends to respond not to the clock, but to the cycles of day and night. As a birth professional, if I'm attending a birth and labor is sort of stalling out, I'm always curious what's going to happen when the sun goes down. Similarly, if labor is happening and it's we're coming up on sunrise, I'm curious to see what will happen when the sun rises. 
I'm, I'm way more interested in paying attention to that than I am to what's happening on the clock because the body, the animal body in labor likes privacy and privacy feels more available in the darkness of night. I'll tell you, Artemis likes privacy too. The stories that go with her being spied on without her permission, whew, they're kind of vicious, <laughs> but we won't go there. So, but darkness, darkness, yeah. nighttime, privacy, feeling like this space is safe to me, yeah. uh, and warmth, you know, rather than than coldness and that feeling of uh, being like the elements of outside, that cave energy is more what we need, that gathering near a fire for warmth energy. So darkness, warmth, privacy, freedom of movement and expression. So feeling, often privacy helps give us that, but right. that feeling where if if we want to get on all fours and moan and howl at the moon, that we aren't going, oh, that that is so not Apollonianly yeah. acceptable. Like, yeah. that's not something that my neighbors, yeah. like, I'm not sure my neighbors are going to be okay with that. It's like getting to a place where it's okay to let that animal within us express itself without being filtered by the neocortex will, will f- help labor hormones function more effectively. They flow better when we go into that place. Right. And so, and, and back to the, you know, 80% of the babies or all the babies I know are C-section. So it's, you know, one of the probably benefits of a natural birth or a home birth is that you can control that light environment. You can, can, you can put candles on if you want to. There's no one hopping into the room that you weren't expecting. And, oh, I don't know. I've, I've seen, or maybe there is. Yeah, I've seen, I mean, there's, again, I mean, you can close curtains as much as you want and there still might be daylight mm-hmm. coming in. Uh, it, even in home births, there are times when, when people, you know, even, I don't know about your house, but at my house, the number of times that the mailman knocks on the door for a particular purpose, rather than just sliding the mail into the slot it happens. Yeah. You know? yeah, yeah. So, so I, I'm one who says, yes, there are things you can do to support privacy. And like, like a home birth might have more opportunities for privacy. And you do still have to ask yourself, how do, how do we help guard this space yeah. in a way that helps labor function? Even if, oh, okay, so what happens if, you know, the neighbor's gardener happens to show up the day that you're in labor at home? Even if you're birthing in a hospital, often labor happens at home. And where we are in Los Angeles, the leaf blower is an everyday occurrence. Yeah, every day. So you can't always control the sounds. You can't always control the sights, the light. But how do you... How do you do the best you can to help create that container wherever you are. So in a hospital, you can turn off lights and bring in electric battery-operated candles. You can hang out in the bathroom where only two or three people fit, yeah. right? Yeah. You can put a, close the door. It's surprising that sometimes even on a labor and delivery ward, doors are open. 
yeah. between rooms. Close the door. Yeah. You know, you can create a space that supports the functional flowing of the hormones necessary for labor. Right. Uh, there's a, a video that came out of Italy that spoke, speaks about how the, the energy needed for making love is very similar energy needed for birth. And they do a parody of making love with the amount of involvement that often accompanies many modern birth environments and it's it, it's both hilarious and totally like it, it it's illuminating and heartbreaking at the same time it's like well wait no that position isn't working can we try let's try a different position and it's like really like sometimes we need and yet that same the same system that allows arousal hormones to flow for lovemaking are the, is the same system that allows the hormones to flow in labor. And so it, if we think, okay, what, do, what works for me in, in allowing myself to feel aroused? That some of those might give you some hints towards what is supportive in labor. Yeah. It's, I mean, that's like that parallel makes total sense. And in the workshop, you talked about, you know, a cave woman finding a cave to give birth in and, you know, she's not going to go to the cave with the lion outside and she's going to go to the one that's the darkest and the deepest and the safest and the one where she can make a fire and the one that she can, she can predict the outcome a little bit or feel safe enough to bring her baby into the world. And if a lion were to knock, She's going to shut down all these birthing hormones, like you said. Right. And I'd love if you dove into a few of those. Yeah. And then if the lion shows up, she's going to stop the whole thing and, and go find a new cave. Yeah. And this is that like yeah that, ad that adrenaline response that, that can neutralize oxytocin, which is so necessary for labor, that when we, we feel threatened, we'll, we get a release of adrenaline. And oxytocin actually gives us, is, is the functional, what tends to drip down from the brain into the uterus to help create the contractions and help move labor along. So it's, it's like, it's very common to be laboring well at home and then move to the hospital to give birth and labor slows down or stops and that's often because the brain is going, hey, is this safe? Is this okay? Is my cave here? Is this, is this working? Is this good for me? And, and it can take some time to kind of settle back in and go, okay, yeah, all right. This is okay. Let's turn the lights off. Let's bring it back down. Let me get back into that zone. And then that adrenaline can release and the body can get back to doing its, its job. Similarly, I, I remember a birth that I attended many years ago where it was several days of start, stop, start, stop labor that didn't really go anywhere. And this mom, this couple was birthing a good hour away from them, their home without traffic. And with traffic, it could be far longer than that. And like on day three, she's like, I think I should go to the hospital. And as a birth professional, I was looking at how her labor was progressing. And I'm like, that's not, we're not there yet. We're <laughs> yeah. not there yet. But we went, we went and it took about 
don't know, an hour, two hours, within the, the three hours of being there, something shifted in her whole body and psyche. And she was like, oh, I can give birth now. And her labor actually started happening. It was as if, and I can't know for sure, but it was as if that the fear of that long drive was keeping her labor at bay. So, so these things matter. I mean, this is the moder- modern equivalent of, of, yeah, the cave woman of Lucy, which my teacher has dubbed her, you know, seeing a tiger and being like, oh, this is not a good spot. <laughs> this is not a good spot to give birth. Right. And so the body has a mechanism to take care of that. Right. So that we protect our, our babies and our bodies in a way that makes sense. And so modern equivalence of that is where do I need to be at the hospital so that I can release and, and drop in and give birth because I'm afraid of that drive or arriving at the hospital and it shuts down because you've left the privacy of your cave that was helping it function so well. Right. And you talked about like when we first started the show, this like should over culture. And I think so much of the time it's just so simple if Lucy's in the cave trying to give birth, but she knows as soon as she starts, she has to go to that other cave and there's an unknown number of obstacles between here and that other cave. Like one plus one is two. She's not going to, she's going to have a hard time. But I think this in our, in our modern culture, we're like, we're always kind of not giving, giving energy or awareness or openness or allowing this very clear sign from mother nature as to what, what could be causing any particular mood. And the example, I guess, is like day two of your workshop, Amelia, Amelia chose to share as soon as we walked in the door, but like I had a stressful morning and it was just, I was just like, kind of like tense. Yeah. And then we got there and I realized that it was cause I was processing and that wheel was spinning and right. I was, I was like juggling this thing. And then it's like, okay, one plus one is two. That's why I was like so tense this morning. It wasn't because I was like angry for no reason. But but yeah. I love this kind of allowing and just this sort of stepping back. And I think birth is a great, amazing process. But I think this lesson can kind of transcend so many areas of life. It's like you feel that way because of this. Yeah. Yeah. And it... I, I mean, in many ways, I'm, I'm, I'll joke, my mom has decided to read Transformed by Birth in her book group, and it made me laugh. And I'm like, <laughs> really, mom? And she said, well, a lot of my friends are dealing with a lot of, of big life changes going on. And I actually think it's completely related across many situations outside of birth. And you you teach in the book things that that actually are impacting my life, even though I'm a grandma and I'm not anywhere yeah. close to giving birth. And I, I do think that so much of, I mean, it, looking through a mythological lens at life can be really helpful. And so the I address these eight ideals in the book and how they impact birth. But you can look at those eight ideals and say, okay, how do those impact my life? <laughs> how wherever I am, in whatever process I'm 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 doing in this moment, whatever transformation is going on in my life. And so I'll, I'll, I don't know what it'll be like for the other women in her uh, book group. <laughs> yeah. You know, I'm like, okay, mom, you're 
you're my mom, so I'll let you do that. But, um, but yeah, I think there's, there's lessons about all of this that, that matter regardless. 100%. And that's the feeling I got reading it. I think that, you know, I think you could easily, you know, it's almost like, you know, the books like chicken soup for the soul. <laughs> it's like transformed by birth, transformed by getting a new job, right. transformed by divorce, transformed. Like you could write a whole series. Yes, I, I actually have a couple <laughs> I have two other books right now kind yeah. of percolating Stewing. in the back of my mind. And yeah, we've, we've joked about maybe they're going to be a, a series. We'll see. But I, I mean, I, I'm still doing this work this many years in because of people like you at the end of the workshop who look at me or, or share in the circle or tell me after the fact, this impacted me. And I feel changed by the experience. And I mean, what what greater honor than to get to work with people and to midwife transformation? I don't midwife births, but I, I do feel like I help to midwife people through a transformative experience. You absolutely do. And and I think what really shines through is the fact that you have been doing this for just about 20 years. And for me, when I would teach two-day workshops, I taught a ton of them all over the world, but I just taught the curriculum and then took the flight home. And I think this is what you teach is just so energetic and you're, you're getting people days, months, weeks prior to the biggest shift that they'll ever have in their entire life. And you can imagine just how much it's clear to me as a participant, just how that has shaped your your curriculum like for me I would have taught the same curriculum for a decade and you know maybe I got a little better at it I didn't have to like look down at the notes or but I I, what I felt was the number of people that preceded me in, in this process and this incredible experience that you've you've created and that much of which is is in the book for for folks that maybe not yeah, well, and 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 I just want to speak that 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 while there are while there's curriculum that I might teach in the class where there's a process or a this or a that, much of the really juicy, engaging parts happen in the connective tissue between those processes. So, like Sunday morning coming in and arriving and having a group come together who are in the midst of processing whatever came up for them the day before and feeling that as you spoke to and showing up and and saying ooh I'm feeling this right and and that that is what feeds what happens in the in the group as yeah. well and I find that pretty much, I mean, I've had a couple of exceptions, but for the most part, that happens in every single class where it's something happens for people on a deep level and they bring that and are willing to share that with each other and that deepens and enriches what happens. Absolutely. Like what you did. Yeah. No, 100%. And I think the safety of a small group and there's a lot of parallels just between like Bert. It's not like you're not in an auditorium with 100 and 
thousand people or what have you, you're, yeah. you're, you do it in a very small group and you sit around a campfire, <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the fifth floor campfire. The and, fifth floor campfire yeah. in a, in a financial planning office, which is sort of hilarious in its own way. <laughs> it's the, it's the Artemisian it's a, it's, and the it Apollonian. It's absolutely, it's, and, and again, not vilifying either one. Right. I think that they have value, both have value and that's important. You know, right. and and yes, the the fact that it is a small group that was a huge piece about why I wrote the book was because I wanted to reach more people beyond the seven couples that I can connect with at a time when yeah. I teach. You know, I want I I feel like there's an opportunity to to you know whether it's chicken soup for the birth soul <laughs> or whatever um, that I want I want to touch that. And, yeah. and help people who are, may not even be on this transformative journey, but are on a transformative journey. You know, I'm a, about to birth my own podcast, which is called Transformed. And that podcast is, I'm, I'm branching slightly away from birth and really speaking just to the transformative process and, and interviewing many of my teachers because I've spent much of my adult life working with other people and, and being a student and my work comes, is highly informed by those who have helped me. Right. And I want to share that with more people. Yeah. That's wonderful. Yeah. The tribe of mentors. Yeah. The, the, that community, that community really matters to me and, and sharing that beyond the, the small way in which, you know, whether this yeah. one touched me in the field of mythology or this one touched me in the field of, I, I share in, in my book about council circles and using council with relationship and some of the people who have taught me about that and various different people like that. It's like, I want to, I want to lift up some of the teachers that are yeah. out there who, who I'm so grateful for in my own life. Yeah. And, and thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And the book is incredible. And I would urge anybody, whether you're amidst this transformation or any transformation, this book is just loaded. And it was even coming on this show, I was thinking to myself without getting too Apollonian about it. Like, I don't know how we're going to keep this to under four or five hours. You know? <laughs> well, you know, we could keep going. We, could. we, we definitely could. Cause, we, cause it's just fun. Yeah. <laughs> it's fun yeah. conversation. And, and you, you also got to experience some of this work within your relationship. And, you know, we could have talked, there's, there's a lot of different pieces that are really rich. They yeah. really are. Yeah. Well, Britta, thank you so much for the, the time today. And, and we're all excited for your podcast. And we'll link mm. to all of your stuff in the show notes. But if people want to pull out their phone now and just find you, where, where do they go? Well, on the social media places, uh, Instagram, I'm Britta Bushnell, PhD. Uh, Britta with two T's, not like the water filter that only has one. So it's B-R-I-T-T-A, Bushnell, B-U-S-H-N-E-L-L. And I'm also on Facebook in the same way. I have a I have a Facebook private community that is Transformed by Birth community. And then my website is BrittaBushnell.com. But then there's the book as yeah. well. And I just have to say thank you so much for the invitation and for trusting me 
to be a mentor and a guide on this big transform transformative journey that you are on. Yeah, well, together. we, we yeah. couldn't have made a better pick. So we're we're so excited about this new chapter. And again, we feel so empowered after the two days that we spent with you and and so ready to just take this on. And I never expected that from a birth. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe it's ironic, but right. I never expected right. it from a birthing class. Yeah. And you touched on so many of the areas that that are challenging to touch. It's hard to learn and and absorb and 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 more importantly, internalize in a way that allows me to actually use those tools. Mm-hmm. And I that's what we felt from the workshop. Mm-hmm. So we're incredibly grateful for you, Britta. And yeah, I would urge everybody to check you out and pick up the book and listen to your podcast. Thank you. Well, it's not out yet, but it's coming soon. So <laughs> you have a teaser episode. I do don't have you? a teaser. I have a intro. Intro episode uh, is up, so Whoa. that yeah, you can follow it, so Amazing. that you get those first couple of episodes when they launch. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you guys so much for listening to today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. For the show notes to today's episode and every episode of Stacked, just head to coachjodi.com slash stacked. And don't forget to leave us a review wherever you found this show. Every two weeks, we send one lucky reviewer a gift card worth $150 to kettlebellkings.com, one of my favorite websites. Good luck and thanks for listening.